Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast where we talk about how data affects our businesses and our lives. And we talk to the people on the front lines of the data revolution. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. I've been honored to know our guest today for several years. Christian Began, the co-founder and chief technology officer at Sumo Logic, has had a long history in the world of data. And he is one of my favorite people to have deep conversations about meaty topics with. And that's good because our topic is meaty. Christian has been spending a lot of time lately thinking about bias, bias in data, and data analytics in particular. And that's what we're going to talk about. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome everybody to Masters of Data. And I am super excited today to have Christian Began with me, who uh, he and I have worked together for a long time at Sumo Logic. He's the chief technology officer there. And Christian, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We've been trying to schedule this a couple of times already. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm really excited we were able to do this. And so, Christian, you and I have known each other for a long time, but not everybody's going to know you as well as I do. So I'd love to start off on these things to get a little bit into your past, like, you know, know you as a person. How did you get to where you are today? How did you get into technology and how did you get to Sumo? So technology for me started when I was uh, much younger couple of centuries ago. Uh, I was like maybe 10, 11 or 12 years old. I don't remember this exactly. But I got into computers by, by reading books uh, that had programs in them, uh, which is really funny. And we had this library bus that would come out to our village. And uh, once I went to all the um, comics, I guess, I ended up with these like dot matrix printed, you know, early computer books where they were talking about basic and these types of things. And somehow that's just caught my attention. Some friends got, you know, Commodore 64s and, you know, were playing games on them and, and, I was, I don't know, I always liked to read and this technical reading stuff somehow came natural to me. I don't really know why. I eventually uh, got a computer myself. I convinced my my parents to get me one. So I had an Atari and uh, I started uh, getting into programming, basically self-taught. I I didn't really learn it from anybody telling me. What did you start out programming? Well, basic, basically. Yeah. That's kind of what you could get. I always try to get a modular two compiler. If anybody still remembers those, uh, but but you needed more RAM in your box, and uh, that would have cost more money. So that didn't happen. What kind of stuff did you start off writing? Was it was it games or like this fun little task with basic or yeah you know the graphic demos and uh, just typing stuff just copying stuff out of magazines on the books right yeah, yeah. And, and then the atari had a sort of an, an early version of a point and click kind of graphical interface yeah um, uh, i think it was called gem uh, or, or, or gem and, and there was a there was a german guy who built a basic version that uh, a version of basic uh, the programming language that that allowed you to do menus and dialog boxes and, and you drop downs and this type of stuff, and I was just endlessly fascinated with that. Yeah, you know, I, I actually had a Commodore 64 too, and I had a program that would make the hard drive sing. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. People did all kinds of crazy stuff with that. Um, so, you know, and then as I got a little bit older, when I turned 16 or so, other things, you know, obviously started becoming a little bit more interesting, and then it was a long detour. I ended up, uh, after school, moving to Berlin. I'm originally from Germany, in case it wasn't like painfully <laughs> obvious from the accent at this point. Uh, and I started studying social sciences, uh, so sociology and politics. I, I was kind of a little bit, I guess, politically aware, kind of looking at stuff when I was still in school, you know, student parliament, you know, those types of classic things. And when I started social sciences, it became clear that you need to write lots of papers there and kind of made a deal with my parents and got uh, a brand new Mac out of it, a Performer 630, if I remember correctly. That was awesome. And I ended up writing a bunch of papers, but I could not get away from that Mac. 
you know, this was the time where you had the CD-ROM drives already and, you know, the magazines at the time, you know, always magazines, right? The computer magazines would include, you know, CD-ROMs of shareware and would just couldn't get away from it. And then I got back into, you know, buying books on, on, on various programming and, you know, Mac-related topics and Linux and these types of things. And I've always found that I ended up being able to kind of spend a lot of time, I don't know, you go to bed, you read. I couldn't take, you know, uh, a sociological text and get myself to read that, you know, for fun. But like all these computer things, all this programming stuff, I always thought it was a lot of fun. And at some point I realized that, you know, I should probably move more into that direction. The internet happened in the meantime. So in 96, I worked a summer, I worked construction in the summer and I took the money and, and bought a, uh, a modem. And uh, the internet had just sort of kind of arrived in Germany. And I had like a Superfax or something, you know, 28 baht, 28.8k baht or whatever. So, and I dialed into like a, a some sort of, you know, dial up online, you know, sort of AOL type thing that we had in, in Germany. And, and that was not interesting and ran straight to the internet and, you know, Netscape and, Holy shit. Right. <laughs> and and so sort I've of never looked back. I ended up studying sort of a combined digital media and computer science program. Um you know, I wasn't really that good at the digital media part. You know, I had a copy of Photoshop and I applied all the filters and then I walked away thinking I was gonna be an artist, you know. <laughs> so I make all these psychedelic, you know, pictures, which was cool. But uh, I ended up being the guy that somehow figured out how to write programs, um, because I had a little bit of that background and it all came back. And then um, an internship. This was a school of applied science. And in Germany, that means in the seventh semester, they kick you out and you need to go and do an internship. And and that's mandatory for this type of school. That's pretty cool. Through a very sort of an incredible sequence of random coincidences, I ended up uh, at Amazon in Seattle in in late 98. Mm -hmm. This was kind of through a German connection. And then I got like totally sucked into this like startup thing. I uh, was part of, you know, starting two companies. That's what got me back to the U.S. I'm, I've been in the U.S. since 2000, early 2000. I arrived just when everything came crashing down. I went to Oxide after, like, we tanked our own company. And you guys all know about my background from Oxide. I was an early engineer there. That was a security information event management company. That's where I sort of got introduced to this concept of log management. And uh, to make a long story short, I was there for almost 10 years. And that's where a lot of these sort of sort of initial ideas around uh, and, and behind Logic came about, right, from observing what works. Mm-hmm. And in this space, and it's a really interesting space, doing data analytics on data that's usually not being analyzed because the formats are, you know, hard to wrap your head around and it's not relational database, that, relational data that you can just load into a warehouse, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and then the idea for Sumo came up and um, together with Kumar, who was also an Arcside guy, we started postulating that this type of tool is very interesting, should be extended, not not just for security, but also for operational analytics use cases. And most importantly, enterprise software was going to be a bad way of selling it and it had to be a service, right? And and that's what got us to start Sumo Logic in, in 2010. That's a, that's a great background. It's actually some things I hadn't heard there. So that's that actually explains a lot about um, how you think about I think the stuff we're going to talk about today. So the access to information is really interesting. It has always fascinated me, right? And uh, I, I still think that this is probably one of the, to me, most formative things about the internet as well, because you can pretty much access everything. Yeah, and when and when and you know, like we we've been talking about for a while now, kind of prepping for this. You've been working with data for a long time. You've been thinking about this for a long time, and uh, you know it's it's a pretty hot topic now. We've had some cool people on the show so far. We've got some coming up, but I. What, what have you been thinking about? What's been rolling around in your head lately about data specifically, kind of like bringing up that level beyond kind of where you and I work with machine data, but like that next level up is data as a general area? Yeah, so obviously almost 20 years into doing stuff with data, right? And um, I think we are 
we are, we are solving many interesting use cases here at Sumo, making systems more observable so that the people that, that run the applications that power their businesses, you know, about becoming more efficient. Um, something that, that I've always wondered about, and, and that's probably natural if you kind of understand a little bit of, of the background that I have, you know, a lot of the background is to some degree accidental, obviously, right? But I have a little bit of background in humanities, right? And then and then there's this whole data thing. And and so there's always this kind of, sometimes there's this like discussion and this dichotomy about, uh, you know, qualitative approaches versus quantitative approaches. Um, and, you know, just to be clear, when we did social sciences or sociology in particular, the most feared course was in statistics because they had like this hardcore math statistics guy in that department that was like <laughs> full of a bunch of, you know, social scientists and, you know, guys who were into politics and they were really like reading Marx and all this type of stuff, of course. And and then there was this one guy and he was like the hardcore math guy and everybody just absolutely, I mean, he was he was tough and everybody hated statistics. Um, I was a math major and I didn't like statistics, so I get that. <laughs> you know, the, the guy didn't, like his personality didn't really help. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, so... So I'm not trying to sort of say that like if you're in the humanities, you're not ever going to use data. But like this has always been sort of in the, in the back of my head. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, you know, some things are qualitative, some things are quantitative, and often people like prefer one over the other, usually very strongly. And I've always I, I can't find whether I'm on one side or the other. So I feel like you know there's an interesting uh, aspect there to the to, to keeping a balance behind these things, right? And so, you know, as I'm as I'm kind of you know living my life in the internet, uh, like like so many of us, you know, you follow all these links and things take you to other things and you see references to things. And one of the things that that I always like look out for uh, is book recommendations. And and so I, I happened across this book by this guy. Um, uh, his name is hard to pronounce. I think it's Christian Matzberg. He wrote a book called Sense Making, right? And and that sort of popped up. And but he's basically fundamentally questioning whether decisions should be made purely on data yeah right uh, and he you know he brings up concepts like instinct and intuition and and context right? mm-hmm. and and that totally resonated with me because it was kind of an interesting sort of stance that kind of went against sort of the prevailing wisdom that has come up especially in the last couple of years around you know data-based decision making the rise of big data and there's a lot there's been a lot of hype around how the world can be improved by by using more data more data like more sensors mm-hmm. you know more observations more data available to everybody and you can do all kinds of you know really interesting things and 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 so this guy walks in and basically says hey you know there might be another way to look at that and he's coming much more from the qualitative side from the ethnographic side etc uh, etc et and so i found that sort of just awfully interesting because I think it's good to sort of look at. Generally, I think it's it's good if you if you can to not convince yourself too much of one opinion. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and and I think that's generally something that people do, and and they, they pick a side basically, right? And conservative versus liberal, or you know, qualitative versus quantitative, left versus right, up versus down, black versus white, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because it feels like that's actually a comfortable spot to be in, because right. there's a lot of other people there, and the world's fairly easy. Okay, the world's white, the world's black. You know, pick one. To me, that's never really worked. I, I just think that's that's kind of betraying your own intelligence. And anyway, so I thought that was awfully interesting. And as you know, and because we've, we've, we've spent a lot of time working together, the concept of context is yeah. something that I've always uh, sort of, you know, tried to embrace and I've talked a lot about. We've talked about, uh, you know, even all the way down to building product features, right? right? That we have all of these data streams coming in, logs and metrics and what have you, and uh, they tell you things, but they often don't actually include uh, the context in which this stuff happens. What he says in the sense-making book is that he's not saying that data is crap or anything, right? But he's basically trying to say, hey, data is not necessarily truth, 
Yeah, and and you need to ask at the con- you need to ask for which context was this data gathered in? What's you know what's the further context of the, the of the research? And so so he has one sort of thing that actually stuck in my mind. He calls that sort of the difference between the savanna and the zoo. Right, mm-hmm. so you can you can put animals in a zoo. You put them in the zoo and you observe something, mm-hmm. but you actually observe them in the savanna in in the actual real context. You'll see something different. You'll yeah. already see something very different, mm-hmm. and and that's actually in you know here's the other thing. I'm a big dog person, as you guys all know. Um, <laughs> and the, ultimately, the, the company is named after my dog, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, we have always dogs in the office, which everybody seems to be really happy with. I am, anyways. But I read something about that recently as well, where. You know, I don't. I don't remember like all the details of the context, but but a lot of the ideas of this term of alpha dog, yeah, right, uh, and, and and domination, right, mm-hmm. in, in in sort of I guess canine society, <laughs> <laughs> is is kind of derived from observing wolves in captivity, hmm. and then it turns out they actually behave completely differently when they are behind bars versus on the wild, than yeah. if they are actually in the wild, mm-hmm. and you know. It's interesting because you. I don't think you need to spend more than half a second, you know, thinking about and realizing that that's very true. It actually applies to people as well. Right, right. right. I mean, I think you would probably be behaving. Well, I, I know I would be very, behave very differently if you put me behind bars here. So you're saying reality TV isn't true? Is that okay? I. <laughs> what is true? Yeah, that that is the that is the huge question here, right? Uh, so so this actually I thought was super interesting. They kind of led me down this other path, which is. So one thing I know about myself is that what I've learned about myself, it took me a long time to learn that, is that I actually am a fairly intuitive person. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just different personality types, right? And and you can say, hey, all of this psychometric stuff is is made up and crap and what have you, and what's the actual foundation, and what's the data saying, blah, 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 all of this right. type of stuff. But I found generally that it can help you observe yourself and, you know, you see where, why am I feeling comfortable in this space and why am I not feeling comfortable in this other space. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I learned, you know, by, by going through some of these things is that I'm a fairly intuitive type. And so that's another thing that's kind of came out in this in this kind of approach to looking at, you know, sort of questioning whether whether data really tells you the truth. You know, if you have people that can make decisions, you know, based on intuition and instinct yeah. and so forth. Uh, and I thought that was just awfully interesting because it kind of felt sort of related to me. I think I connected with that part of the book, too, because Christian is one of my uh, top book recommenders now at this point. <laughs> that sense making book was great. I think I connected the most with the book when he got to that point where he talked about intuition and about experts being able to act on instinct because of all the experience they've accumulated over time. That's not a bad thing. It's actually even last week we talked to um, Matt Ballantyne and Matt was talking about the same thing. And it's, yeah. it, it seems to be kind of this topic going on is that, you know, where do you use data and how do you use data and not discounting the intuition that people built over time, but then also realizing, you know, your own context, you yes. know, and my intuition is not necessarily going to be correct for someone that's in a completely separate context too. And that, that's, I mean, since data is driving so much of the technology we use today, that's an incredibly important topic, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And But here's the kicker, all right? So if you feel like you you trust your intuition, which which I think has advantages. Mm. If I wasn't able to sort of trust my intuition, this company would not exist. Right. Right, right exactly. Because the data would have probably said, you're effing crazy. Right. Right, you have no chance to compete against the people that are already in the market and, you know, blah, 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 all these things. And I think to make bold decisions sometimes... Sometimes you have to trust your intuition, and but it's very tricky because if you if you get too full of yourself. So the thing that I realized next was that you know maybe there is a self-serving aspect to my embrace of the argument in the book. Yeah. Right. That basically says, hey, you know, I can make better decisions than the people who bring data. 
<laughs> and then I got really worried, right? Because, you know, I mean, I, I like to surf myself as much as anybody. Right? <laughs> but what that led me to is, again, this is like this, like entire, like the internet is this like crazy thing where, you know, when, when you, when you hear about a new type of car and then suddenly you drive down the freeway and, and everywhere you see this, this new type of car, right? right? Or you see a particular license plate that, you know, has a particular number on it and suddenly mm -hmm. every other license, like, you know. I find myself like, you know, using the internet in my sort of daily habits of, of ingesting information uh, in, in a very similar way where like once I'm aware of a topic, then, you know, suddenly, you know, related things start popping up that right. I, is all the serendipitous basically. Um, well, that's and, intuition is core, right? Exactly. I guess, yeah, maybe. It's when making you just those make connections. ready to, to sort of perceive, right? Yeah. So then I came across this... Um, this other book, which which I think is is I think a lot of people like I think came out in 2016, and and I think a lot of people have looked into it and and uh, it's it's kind of sort of started a lot of discussions. The book again has a fantastic title. It's it's called Weapons of Math Destruction. Yeah, I love that title. Math Destruction is written by a by a math PhD, and we the main point I think one of the sort of underlying points is that this idea that data in itself speaks to any kind of actual truth for whatever that definition is, mm -hmm. is essentially complete, you know, horse crap. Mm -hmm. Because the data gets collected by people, mm -hmm. the data gets analyzed by people, and, you know, those people bring their intuition to the task, right. and they bring their biases mm -hmm. to that task, right? And then I started looking into, and then I just realized, and this is when I got into this, like, whole loop about the self-serving aspect of, you know, trusting your intuition. Right, right. right. And it's back to, you know, having to somehow find a balance because biases are a real, are a real thing, right? And, and so I started looking a little bit into bias, you know, so basically, the, I mean, if you look it up in Google, it basically says it's prejudice, you know, in favor of or against one thing, person or group, mm -hmm. and you go right to prejudice. I mean, it's a pretty harsh word. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so then I went to Wikipedia, and then this is just too funny to share. <laughs> so, if you look at the Wikipedia article on bias, um, it has the neutrality flag turned on. So, basically, right under the headline, it has this meant this box. You know, when yeah. it's basically flagged for neutrality, it says. So, this is the article on bias, right? And there's this big box that says the neutrality of this article is disputed. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. <laughs> no, you really can't. Uh, and 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 this was literally yesterday when I when I kind of like you know looked all these things back up and it yeah. just was so funny. There's this other article that's called like on recursion. Yeah. That people constantly vandalize and just replace <laughs> the entire text with C recursion. <laughs> yeah. So Wikipedia is cool. Um, but there are so many, and so you look at this, right? And you know, when you when you start wrapping your head around things like bias, then yeah. then there's just so many, and 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 it feels like you're almost powerless, right? You know, anchoring. Mm. You know, you go, and you know, the used car sales guy, you know, gives you an initial price that's too high, and it goes down to grand, and you're like, okay, I buy it now. But if you actually were to do your research, you're still paying two grand too much. Right, right. Right, because the original anchor price was like, you know, set up. So the, the anchoring is like the, the first thing that you basically hear about a particular topic usually forms your opinion. Right. Right. And it's very hard to get past that. And and I think that's probably why these political attack ads work so well. Right. Because if, you, if you're sitting out, that's why they spend so much. They seem to yeah. work well, right, because people spend so much money on it. Because if you have, you know, any sort of topic, uh, you know, ballot or a particular person, and, and they do that, like, not just in terms of presidents, et cetera, but like this goes all the way to municipal kind of elections and, yeah. you know, local ballot things. 
So they, they try to basically, you know, anchor you on a, on a particular opinion. It seems like generally this is almost impossible to train yourself out of. When they're not changing opinions, they're picking something that's probably already there and trying to pull it out to a certain extent, right? What they're setting the opinion, right? Yeah. So if you like, if you if you believe that this anchoring that that, that anchoring is a is a cognitive bias that is that is like, and I think generally people believe that that mm-hmm. is something that that's true mm-hmm. for whatever definition of truth. But it it seems to be more or less. People have observed that that actually you know seems to happen quite a bit, right? And and so. It seems that if this is true, then you rely on the first bit of information to make a decision. Oh, okay, so it's the right? first thing that you yeah, hear. Yeah, so if I can get onto of you, and you know, it's like, okay. hey, um, you know, if I'm the conservative guy, and you know, I have a liberal guy, and then you know, I come in there and I say something really nasty about this liberal person or about their policy ideas, etc. And everything works off of that. Yeah, that's that's actually quite interesting. So there's lots of biases, right? And Confirmation bias is another one. Well, talk, talk a little bit more about that. So what does confirmation bias actually mean in this context? So confirmation bias is essentially, you know, defined as, you know, focusing on information that supports our beliefs and paying less attention to information that, uh, that contradicts that. You know, and, and, and also sort of if you have, you know, ambiguous information, you will just assume that it supports your point. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, we've been going, I mean, we've had our own game of this for like a long time, right? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. between, you know, you know, when there's engineering and product management and okay, so who has the data wins, but you know, it's not that easy. No. Right. Because your piece of data versus my piece of data, if we have different biases, you know, it, I'm going to take my piece of data supporting, you know, my opinion much more, much more seriously. And, and so that's tough. And there's there's something very natural about that because if you actually want to officially make decisions on some point, you can't just view all the data all at once. You have to yep. so with that balance. But then I guess recognizing that that's an issue is like the first step. Exactly, and I think that's probably the best we can do. You know, in all of this, and this is like my my general takeaway is I don't I don't think I look. I mean, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but it doesn't look like there's an actual solution here, right? It's just you just have to be aware, and you got to train yourself to, to sort of stay aware of of these things that are that are influencing you, right? And and, and that are that are natural and you can't just shake them. Yeah. Right. So you, you can't sort of turn yourself into a purely rational machine. Yeah. But the trick is that on some level, okay, so I trust my intuition, but then I also learn about all all these horrible biases that seem, mm-hmm. you know, to be expressed by people by and large. So that, that ends up sending you for, for quite a loop. You know, and then other biases is obviously prejudice, right? And, you know, classism, having opinions about people based on social class. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's something that's very popular, unfortunately. Um, the rich usually look down on the poor. Yeah. It's often, you know, by saying that there's some sort of moral failure. Yeah. Right? I think in this country, for sure. You know, I think it happens in a lot of countries and a lot of places. It's pretty tough. And the other one that I like is lookism. I haven't heard of that. So lookism, right? So basically, you um, you judge people by their look, ah, right? So take the news anchor thing, mm-hmm. right? So the news anchors are usually really good looking because generally people seem to trust good looking people more. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> right? Which that that really works in my favor, right? Because <laughs> of course I'm extremely good looking after all. So yeah. So one quick way to figure out how to basically figure out what people are biased against is so this is the classic trick, right? You you basically use this Google prediction type ahead like type ahead prediction thing, right? Right, right. right. And uh, so I did that. Uh, you know, just a prep. I did it yesterday. So people are and you know you you type bias bias against and it completes, right? Right, right. So here's what it completed as of yesterday: action in Congress, <laughs> you know, religion, and then introverts. Bias against introverts is like the fourth hit. Wow. I was like, what did I ever do to you? Bias <laughs> against conservatives. Okay. 
Bias against mental illness, bias against LGBT, unfortunate, bias against Israel, hmm. a huge conflict there. Yeah. Um, bias against homeless. And then, you know, the last one, I'm not going to say whether it's my favorite or not, but um, bias against conservative students. <laughs> That's very specific. <laughs> Literally, I have to screenshot. It's pretty funny. Right? Wow. Um, so, so these things are like mirrors, right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, sometimes. Um, but I think the reality is that when you hear about this stuff, you might not actually internalize it to the same degree. Because I think, you know, most of us, you know, consider ourselves to be fairly intelligent and aware you know, I, I'm not walking around, you know, admitting to everybody on the street that that, that I'm a victim to my biases, right? Mm -hmm. But it does come through at times, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's all kinds of sort of little games that you can play with yourself and try to observe yourself, like mm -hmm. try to like, you know, put that second voice in your head that sort of observes, right. right? So for example, you know, go through, so we're in startup land here, right? So we go, we go to a lot of companies and we look at the about us pages and we look at the executive team. Right, right. That's usually the first place I go. Exactly. Right. You know, product marketing, you know, we just look at this. And so, you know, just try this at home, look at it, you know, and keep doing it for a couple of companies until you hit one that has an African-American CEO, hmm. you know, and then swallow. <laughs> yeah. And then see what your reaction was. Right. Or a female CEO. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I don't know, all executives are from India or something like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, my prediction is is that what you, what you will find in observing yourself is going to be surprising. Yeah. So, there we are, right? You know, we want to sort of, we want to rely on our intuition. Biases are a real thing. Yeah. So, we have a bit of a problem here. Yeah. Right? And then people go and say, well, but that's why we want to use data in order to iron out all of these things. Right. Right. Because I'm not the first person to talk about bias. I think has been around, you know, yeah. forever, basically. Yeah. Right. Especially so recently, yeah. this is not like new insight or so. No. And then what you're getting is, and you know, this is where, this is where the book comes in that I, that I was talking about just a little bit ago. This is where it gets really interesting because, you know, big data analysis and, you know, uh, you know, mathematical modeling and so forth ends up being introduced in order to overcome these biases. Mm -hmm. Right. So this, this one example, like this is from the Weapons of Math Destruction book, mm -hmm. right, where she's basically talking through a, a, a number of, of scenarios where, you know, people went from thinking that sort of qualitative assessments were, you know, subject to bias and try to replace them with more uh, quantitative approaches. So basically mm -hmm. models and this type of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the entire book is essentially chapter for chapter, a dissection of the good intentions leading to um, oftentimes, not always, but like, you know, there are some other things where it becomes more like predatory lending and these types of things where I don't think you can, you can claim good intentions. But there is a, there's a lot of examples when it comes to um, ranking teachers and, uh, you know, recidivism is the other example that's also been talked about in, in other places where, you know, the, the approach was to initially go and say, hey, you know, all this reviewing of people that we're doing, whether it's, you know, judging teachers on, on how efficient they are or, or how, how good they are or how, you know, how much they contribute really to their students' advancements, right? right? I mean, that's, I think that's one way to define efficiency for a teacher if you want to use a cold word like that. And then recidivism is about, you know, the chances of somebody who has committed a crime. You know, to, going back to prison. Yeah. To basically commit another yeah, yeah, crime. Right. right. And so when you look at, you know, teachers' evaluations, 
then it's all based on you know peer feedback and so forth and then you start looking at well you know but maybe maybe the teacher kind of you know bought a new car for somebody or and that's a stupid example but you know there's like these kind of soft social things in there like and, and then friendly so, or teachers versus not or something yeah exactly right and then and then try then people try to quantify that right and then what happens is that they are focusing on test scores and specifically there's this one example that she has from Washington DC in the book that is uh, that's 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 really kind of interesting where um, they had some they thought that school system was under performing you know they brought some reformer in um, you know they built like a teacher assessment tool which is a mathematical model of some sort and an algorithm basically I don't think it was like super complex but so what happened was they called this the value added model so they were basically tracking um, the the test scores of students year over year, mm-hmm. and if the scores went up, went up, that meant the teacher was good. Hmm. And for those that the score went down, the teacher got a lower score than themselves, and they would cut the bottom two percent every year, and then they would cut the bottom five percent of teachers. Hmm. Right, simply based on this evaluation of the essentially the delta between the scores of the students mm-hmm. year over year. Right, and and what happened, and then this became like a national thing. Um, there's like Washington Post articles on this, et cetera. They had a bunch of teachers where they just ended up finding themselves getting fired, and they they couldn't really, you know, figure out why. Mm-hmm. Right, and so the first problem that happened was that the score wasn't going to be wasn't actually explained to them. Right, right, because of course the people who built this tool didn't want to sort of reveal the algorithm. So you game it, right? Right, and so. What had happened to her, most likely in this case of this one teacher, was that um, the school that had the class previously, so there was, um, this was kind of, I think, between schools and, you know, from between grade and, you know, the education system here better, but like she had them like the first time in the first grade that they came over to this school Mm -hmm. and the outcoming school, they had like really high scores. And then when they showed up in her, in her class, they could barely read. Right. And, and so of course, then you know, the, the scores dropped because she didn't inflate them artificially. Mm. But what then happened, what they reverse engineered was that uh, because of this value-added model, the difference, I mean, the, the, the trajectory of the, of, the, of the scores for the students went down and that put her like, you know, in, in sort of the bottom rung and then she got fired. And um, I think she had to raise hell to basically get any kind of explanation out of the model, right? And this is kind of then generally, you know, one of the things that people, you know, bring up that makes things very different and makes things very um, complicated when you are being judged by an algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> right? That the ecosystem around the algorithm believes the algorithm is correct, that algorithms often can't explain yeah, their results, right? right? You, you get that in machine learning all the time. Right. Right? I mean, we went through this in our own product, actually, right? right. right? Where, where anomaly detection you know, okay, but why is it an anomaly? And so we, it was, it's not that easy to explain actually. Right, right. Right. And, and so, you know, if you have a product and it can't, you know, explain an anomaly, that's one thing because people can just ignore it. Right. But, but if this type of, if this type of reasoning and, and this type of machinery is being deployed against people, then it becomes potentially life altering. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so, so, you know, this is sort of one of the, one of the examples and you run into this, into this, in this paradox, right. Because the algorithm, like, is essentially opaque, right? right? And and it's hard to explain. But then when people complain about the actions that are being done based on the evaluation that's coming from the algorithm, they are expected to bring like perfect evidence. But if you don't know how you're being judged, how are you going to have perfect evidence? You know, and you right. end up in this like endless loop, which is which is very very unfortunate, right? For the for the individuals, right? And then the recidivism example goes into the same direction, where basically what happens is that. 
in the design of these of these instruments and these models and these tools, it's fairly easy to observe when you take a step back that there are clear biases that exist that simply reproduce the biases that were present before mm-hmm. that people wanted to build these models for in order to eradicate. But in the end, they'll just get the same biases, but they don't come with an explanation anymore, right? Because a biased human at least has a mouth, right? And you know, if you put enough themselves. pressure on them, they can at least try to explain themselves, right? right. But you know, if you have an algorithm and a bunch of data that basically you know, spits out uh, a recommendation to a judge in terms of what your risk of recidivism is, uh, you might just end up getting a longer sentence. Yeah. And the longer sentence is going to typically, in, you know, increase your risk actually because you're going to be in prison longer you're going to be out of social um you know your regular social environment longer all of these types of things you know there's a lot of criminality and you know criminal stuff happening in prison etc so it's like another endless loop right and so the way that this recidivism uh model that is being talked about in the book worked was that they basically um you know, ask people questions. It was, a, it was a survey, right? And then they computed a score. And the questions for recidivism were, how many priors do you have? Do you take drugs or alcohol? Where you grew up? When were you involved for the first time with the police? Et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and those are basically mm. all systemic questions to figure right. out, you know, by and large, you know, whether or not you're African-American or Hispanic and you come from, you know, a poor area. It's yeah. short of actually asking for it, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you then look at the statistics for, you know, New York City stop and frisk, et cetera, and you look at uh, how it breaks down based on race in, in terms of, you know, relationship stark, to, right? the, to the population. I mean, yeah. those biases exist in reality. Uh, and then you re-encode them into, into the models. Mm-hmm. But then the outcome of that is that, you know, the model, seem, the model is, is, is explained as being mathematically sound and questioning the model becomes much harder. Yeah, if not impossible, right? And so the argument to take away from that, then, if you if you follow that line of reasoning, is that with these types of things, potentially things are getting worse than they were before, hmm. right? Because of well, unintended consequences, and and because of this like potentially blind belief that as soon as I have data, I'm right. So yeah, right. And then and now you're coming full circle because there's really now what do you do? Intuition is prone to biases, so you know. Okay, let's do data, but how is the data being collected? How is the data being interpreted? It's not that the data or the algorithms write themselves, right? No. There's always humans involved. And the fact is that humans are just messy. And the bias may be harder to uncover in that instance, right? So so I thought that was, um, I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on there. And, yeah. and I think it's an interesting discussion in light of, you know, like the pendulum having swung, you know, pretty heavily towards looking at like some of these sort of really amazing things that you can do with data. Mm-hmm. Right, it's like I don't know, detecting potential infections in prematurely born babies in a hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, two weeks before they actually show signs that humans can observe, and, yeah. and then and like day after day, being able to sort of analyze seismic activity to predict earthquakes and uh, some pretty cool stuff, right? And, yeah. and stuff that really helps people. But generally, the issues that I, it looks like you know people have now analyzed, and at least there is some set of people that is basically saying, hey, there's potentially a cost to some of these. Yeah. applications of data. And I think that's really what it's all about. And it's about awareness at that point and, you know, trying to figure out whether, given the context, what, how you should interpret the data, basically. Yeah. Hey, well, to, to wrap up, I want to ask you a question. So you're a CTO in Silicon Valley where a lot of these, you know, these algorithms are being written and programs are being written. When you think about it from that vantage point, what do you, th- 
how do you see the responsibility of these companies that are writing these code and creating these algorithms are to address some of the things you're talking about? Oh, it's very tough. You know, commercial interests are at work and, you know, we have a startup here, we have commercial interests, right? Yeah. I mean, um, I cannot be a bigot about this, right? And, you know, say it's the other people's problem. Um, so I think... I think generally the discussion that has to happen is kind of is about the ethics around all of this. Mm, yeah, I don't really have a perfect answer, I will, or, or even anything close to a perfect answer. But, but I find that I find that like following the strain of thought and you know looking at references to these types of topics that we just discussed, mm-hmm. it becomes a little bit clear to me that that folks need to reflect on these types of things, mm-hmm. right? And and I think nobody there's a couple of books on this, right? And um, nobody really has has like a like nobody has an algorithmic solution to this right because no. it is messy right? yeah right, right right and so you know the weapons of math destruction um, author su- suggests uh, some sort of hippocratic hippocratic uh, uh, pledge hmm. like like why for for for, for doctors right mm, that's interesting for, for data scientists and then you know if anybody who's listening you know wants to dive deeper into the sort of ethics part there's this lady called Kate Crawford actually who is like this super accomplished professor and uh, she's she's been writing at a very high academic level about you know you know data bias and fairness and these types of things and one of the recent things that she wrote about is essentially um sort of 10 recommendations for sort of for sort of things that you need to keep in mind mm-hmm. when you're doing with when you're when you're dealing with data and, and so she's touching on things such as you know always assume that data are people right right don't assume that just because it's a public data set uh, it's properly anonymized uh, especially when you link public data sets, you can often identify individuals, mm-hmm. right? Um, don't trust your own anonymization because that can often be reverse engineered very easily, you know, because oftentimes there are like people out there that have incentive to do that, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think there's a, I mean, there's another three podcasts in that alone, frankly. So, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's an intellectual exercise on some level, right? I think you, you just, sort of have to want to kind of try to solve this problem on some level. But I think it's a sort of step-by-step becoming aware and potentially saying, hey, we could build this feature, but we won't. Yeah. Yeah. What, is it? what does it mean? Right. Well, this has been super interesting, Christian. It's, it's nice to see how your mind's thinking about this. And I think, uh, I think this would be pretty educational for people listening. <laughs> As I said, humans are messy and so am I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's what makes life interesting. Well, uh, everybody, thanks for uh, tuning in. And Christian, thank you for coming on. Check out the rest of the episodes. we got some uh, more episodes coming on this very set of topics, you know, based on some recommendations we got from Christian and others. And I uh, look forward to that in your feed. Thanks, everybody. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.